Hi, I'm Lauren Gilger, co-host of the show, one of KJZZ's original productions. It's a program with news and features from across Phoenix and the state. You can find much more at theshow.kjzz.org. Here's today's episode. Good morning and welcome to the show here on KJZZ 91.5 in Phoenix. I'm Lauren Gilger. Coming up, what GOP leadership is hoping to tackle in the legislature this year. And if 2023 was a year of going out, will 2024 be a year of staying in? But first, when it comes to the Metro Phoenix housing market, 2023 was a bit of a slog of a year. The year before began with a frenzied rise in prices, bidding wars, and exhausted realtors until it was all put to a stop by rising interest rates. 2023 then saw many fewer listings and the lowest number of home sales since the Great Recession. So what are experts watching for in 2024? For that, I am joined by Mark Stapp, Freddie Taylor, Professor of Real Estate at ASU. Good morning. Good morning, Okay, so give us first your top line predictions for the housing market in 2024. We've seen this kind of steady and then very sometimes very sharp rise in prices. Are we going to see them go down at any point here? No, (laughs) probably not. For all those who are hoping that prices are going to plummet or fall drastically, that's not likely going to happen. In fact, they're probably going to continue to go up just at a much more moderate pace. So what drives that? I know interest rates have been a big part of the conversation, but also it's just the lack of housing, right? We still have a shortage in housing, it seems. Yeah, a a, a significant shortage in housing. And, you know, some of this was driven by the fact that for more than a decade, we underbuilt. Mm. And then a couple of factors took over, which constrained the inventory. One of which was all of those people that were able to get relatively low interest – or not relatively, very low interest rate loans yeah. get locked into their home, right? And so you don't have this fluidity in the market that you would want to have in a turnover of existing home inventory. Right. You don't so, want to get a higher interest rate and buy a new house. Yeah. Exactly. So you've got 61 percent of all mortgages are um, – 4% or below. Mm-hmm. And 82% of all mortgages are 5% or below. So until you get the current mortgage rate down closer to that, the trade-off is too big, mm-hmm. right? And, and it's going to keep the inventory relatively low. Okay. I think we have about four months of existing home inventory in the market right now, which is better than it was, but it's about what it was in uh, this time last year. So we continue to see people move here, too, like this population growth to the valley is going up and up and up. Does that contribute to the problem here? Are we building enough to keep up with it? Well, people would say it's a problem, but it contributes to the fact that there is more demand than there is supply. Sure. And, you know, so the additional supply has to be made up not from people moving out of their existing homes, uh, but by home builders building Mm -hmm. new homes. and. Those aren't always in the place you want them to be. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's also been harder for home builders to build the number of homes that we need to make up the for the demand that's growing. Mm-hmm. Let's talk about affordable housing, Mark. I know the affordable housing crisis is like a phrase we have talked about at an ad nauseum here for, for many years. That continues. There are some specific pockets where that is worse. Are we doing anything, though, or are we anticipated to do anything in this new year to try to ease that crisis? Well, we're always trying to do something to ease it, Lauren, but it's hard. You know, so affordable housing 
that there's there's not a singular definition for it, mm. right? So there's two, I think, important words. One of them is attainable housing, right. and that's housing that people can afford. And then there's affordable housing, and that adds into a whole different group of the population that has trouble affording anything. Mm-hmm. So what you don't want is people being burdened by their home, um, the cost to, to occupy a space, either rented or owned. Mm. Uh, but there's people that can't afford anything. And and we've got both problems in the Valley. And it's a surprise to a lot of people that we have an affordability issue here because we were always known as a very affordable place. But yeah. that that was the result of the same factors that have created – the short supply that we have, right? So prices mm. kept going up, wages didn't go up, it exacerbated matters. Um, and the money that's available for true affordable housing is a relatively small pot compared to the demand. So we're always behind the curve in trying to supply the necessary number of units to meet the demand that we have for truly affordable. And that's I would say 80% of area median income and below. And Mm -hmm. when you get to 60% or 40%, then there's a real dearth of available units. Mm. This is a bigger problem even when it comes to seniors. Affordable senior housing is a problem, right? It it is. It's it's an increasing problem. Mm. So the the leading edge of people 80 years old um, is for the baby boomers is just beginning. Mm -hmm. By 2035 – we will have doubled the number of people 80 years of age or older compared to where we were in 2016. Wow. Right? So we'll have about 24 million people in this country that are that age and they have to live somewhere. Mm-hmm. And they're typically on fixed income. And it becomes increasingly difficult for them to find a place to live. This also goes back to this fluidity in the existing home market. So you have a, about 68% of people over the age of 70 are mm-hmm. mortgage-free. So the cheapest place for many of them to live is in the home that they're in. Rather than giving that home up and putting it back into the inventory for a younger family to move into, it may be that it's cheaper for them to stay in that house. And that just, again, exacerbates this matter of having a fluid marketplace. Mm. Last 30 seconds or so here. Tell us what you're looking forward to seeing happen this year. Are there programs in place, new ideas coming, things that you're looking forward to, hoping things might, you know, ease some of those issues? So I think overall, you've got both cities and towns and on the state level, people focused on trying to make sure that we have adequate supply of affordable housing. It's very important for us as is a place, right? So it's an economic development issue mm-hmm. in addition to being a social issue. And I see a lot of progress being made through cities and towns, ordinances, programs, monies available that are going to at least help. But we're going to see the same kinds of conditions persist throughout this year. There's not going to be a significant change. All right. We'll leave it there for now. Mark Stapp, Freddie Taylor, Professor of Real Estate at ASU, joining us. Mark, thanks so much. Appreciate it. My pleasure. Happy New Year. When the state legislature comes back into session on Monday, there will be no shortage of issues on lawmakers' minds, from the budget shortfall for the fiscal year and the next one, to school vouchers, to Arizona's public universities. 
Last year's session was the longest ever in the state and produced a new record for the number of gubernatorial vetoes. To get a sense of what 2024 may have in store at the state capitol, we spoke with two legislators, one Republican and one Democrat. And we start with State Senator T.J. Shope, a Coolidge Republican and the chamber's president pro tem. He spoke with my co-host Mark Brody, who asked how much the state's financial picture will underpin most, if not all, of what lawmakers do this year. I think it's very fair to say that the state budget conversation will be the thing that sucks all the oxygen out of the room. Uh, it's one of the reasons why I don't think you'll see as many vetoes of bills this session. It's one of the reasons I, I don't think you'll have many other issues. And that's not to say that there aren't other issues that are important. Um, but the state budget underpins every single one of those issues because in order to potentially appropriate money to any one of those that you need to solve, you need to have a balanced budget. And right now, obviously, uh, we have, just like much of the country, uh, a uh, deficit. Ours is actually very manageable at about $800 million uh, this year and, and looking at next year. Look, I mean, the economic forces that have been at play nationally, no state is immune to that. However, I think the things that we have done as a state over the last handful of years have set us up in a place to bounce back probably faster than many of our other competitive states. Are you anticipating that there will have to be cuts to the budget? I'm anticipating that there will be a combination of, of yes, actual uh, cuts. And most of those are cuts of, if not all, cuts of one-time spending uh, that has been approved over the last couple of years. Uh, structurally, as far as ongoing, we're in pretty good shape. We we don't foresee really any cuts to any ongoing types of things like programs that okay. maybe the general public relies on uh, that that are things that we do. K-12, I, I foresee no uh, cuts to anywhere in K-12 education uh, going forward. But so what we're talking about are, are maybe there are some programs that we funded just for one year at a time that maybe instead of that increase that that program may have expected that they may actually just see their level of funding stay the same. Okay. Uh, or uh, there may be a couple projects that the state was looking at funding, uh, you know, in the next year as far as transportation, for example, that perhaps we're going to have to defer a year or two. Some of your colleagues have talked about pretty steep reductions to university funding. Oftentimes, it comes sort of in the context of free speech issues and things like that. Do you foresee cuts to university budgets? First off, I think you know the the spreadsheets that I have literally have every, you know pretty much every line item that we've approved over the last uh, you know three years. So in that sense, everything is on the table, mm-hmm. right? But that's the way it should be. We should be we shouldn't just have a sacred cow kind of an item that hey no we can't look at that, um, but. Uh, to say that, you know, I think the specific words used were we're going to gut the universities yeah. and that was, you know, even that was something that I, I kind of looked at, heard and rolled my eyes about. You know, it's like I don't think that that's going to happen. There may be some problems, though, as far as I know Arizona State and uh, northern Arizona are looking at starting medical schools. Mm-hmm. Uh, that may have to either be pushed off or um, they may have to get a little more creative with internal dollars that they have. Um, and I could foresee the state potentially picking up the tab later on in the out years to to allow that to happen. But look, the the universities in Arizona, and I say that about all of them, 
do great work and they have different missions and the, the missions that they are involved in are, are generally positive for the state. And I, my hope is that we'll be able to make sure that they are able to keep doing that. In terms of K-12, obviously ESAs, the essentially school vouchers, were such a big issue uh, in 2023. And there's been a lot of talk, especially from Democrats, about the need for or the concern about the amount of money that it's costing the number of, of students and families who are, who are taking the state up on this. Do you see any changes potentially coming to that program? Is that an area the state's going to need to fund more because of the number of, of, of students who are taking it? Uh, on the, actually, I, we believe on the contrary. And our, our, our um, metrics show that um, that first year you had a lot of already enrolled private school students mm-hmm. taking advantage of the prog- program now that it was available to them. As, a, as we get monthly updates from the Department of Education, we're actually seeing that it's, that has kind of ebbed. And now you're seeing the students who may be in a charter school or a uh, district school of some sort taking advantage, which actually in the out years, that's why we have a projection that it actually will save uh, money. But we do consider the program to be part of the entire K-12 umbrella. So when we say that we're not going to touch K-12 funding, that's part of it. So you mentioned that you think there might be fewer vetoes this session in 2024 than 2023. Of course, 2023, Governor Hobbs set the record for for the number of vetoes. Does that mean that you think there will be fewer, quote unquote, culture war type bills, fewer election type bills that clearly the governor will not sign? I don't know that there will be fewer of them introduced. I mean, any member left or right has the same opportunity to introduce bills as as the other. Sure. Uh, However, since we have maybe tried something and it was vetoed. If you're going to run the same exact bill the following year, what have you done? The question will be, what have you done to maybe change the governor's mind, right? Uh, and I'm certainly not immune. I had a couple bills that, well, although I wouldn't call them culture war kind of uh, issues that perhaps the governor hadn't staffed up yet. So we couldn't have a conversation with somebody who was an expert in the field to talk about why this was important or any number of uh, of other more innocuous reasons. Uh, so we'll go ahead and try again now that their staff is there. Uh, but for those who maybe were running things that I would characterize as veto bait, um, I have a strong suspicion that we won't see as many of them make it you know, to the governor, mm-hmm. mainly because at what point do you go ahead and if the governor's theoretically fundraising off of all the vetoes just as much as we're fundraising off of passing uh, culture war bills. At some point, the insanity has to stop on either side, right? So you know as well as anybody that every year some issue comes to the fore that nobody really saw coming, like the tamale bill last year that I think in January, if we'd had this conversation, that probably would not have been among the things that you had said would be a huge issue. Do you have any kind of like crystal ball prediction as to what something that's under the radar now that, you know, come maybe February or March or April will be something that everybody's talking about? Right. I'll go out on a limb and say that uh, um, I don't believe, even though it is very important and it's something that I have worked on extensively, I don't think that water is going to rise to the top as far as being a number one issue. I think that because there's probably just overall disagreement on how to achieve goals, uh, so much so that people will just say, all right, we can't figure this out. Let's piecemeal a few small things together. Is that okay? I mean, we kind of got bailed out by the precipitation last winter, but clearly lots of issues. There are lots of issues there. I think that there's a lot, uh, but there's also a lot of various 
areas that people want to go that may not lend itself to consensus at this time. Uh, the the reality is is that right now we have a lot of water in some places and we don't have a lot in other places. The things I'm very interested on, how do we go ahead and make sure that when the Salt River uh, watershed has a good year, that there's some transferability that can happen with the Colorado River system. We had a bill last year to do that in my neck of the woods. Uh, but the reality is, is that just because it doesn't rise to the level potentially of importance uh, that it deserves as far as bills doesn't mean that people aren't talking about it. Sure. All right. We'll have to leave it there. That is State Senator T.J. Shope. Senator, thanks for coming in. Thanks for having me. Tomorrow on the show, we'll hear from Democratic legislator Christine Marsh with her view from the other side of the aisle heading into this legislative session. Good morning. It's the show on KJZZ 91.5. I'm Lauren Gilger. Coming up, sweaters, soup, and more 2024 trend predictions. But first, it is officially 2024, and that means the next presidential election year is upon us. And Arizona is set to be the center of the political universe as it plays out. We are now a key swing state rife with independent, with a capital I, voters and races that are increasingly tight. And then, of course, there's the issue of elections themselves and if candidates will challenge them and and the electorate will trust them. For more on all of it, I sat down with longtime Arizona political reporter Yvonne Winget Sanchez. She covers democracy in Arizona for The Washington Post. And she told me this is a question that's been on her mind a lot as 2023 wound down. Here is our conversation in today's Deep Dive. As Thanksgiving passed, I was celebrating with my family and I kept thinking about how much I needed to enjoy this because we don't know what next year is going to look like. Mm-hmm. If 2022 and 2020 are any comparison, we are going to be at the center of the universe. Already I'm hearing that Republican side, we we make a lot of presumptions about on the Democratic side, but both teams are building out their legal teams. Mm -hmm. They had war rooms in 2020 that set up shop and were here for many, many, many weeks. Hmm. I'm told it's going to be as long, if not longer, heading into this next cycle as it was in 2020. It is going to be drawn out. It's going to be contentious. And I think both sides are going to be more organized and um, they are anticipating legal fights that they perhaps did not anticipate uh, at the same level in 2020. So you're you're looking at this sort of the post-election already because we know almost no matter what the results are, they will be challenged. It will be challenged Every which way to Sunday and not just the presidential election, the U.S. Senate, the congressional races, county supervisor races, perhaps. I mean, all of these competitive races that came down in 2020 to just several hundred votes, Mm -hmm. like Mm -hmm. we are starting to enter like territory where everything matters. I think the race for attorney general in 2022, which was decided by 280 votes, Mm -hmm. very instructive for us. Mm -hmm. This is what we are anticipating in some of these statewide races, margins that come down to that little or that narrow of a margin. And every single jurisdiction obviously matters. Every single issue that we have been talking about since 2020 and 2022, everything from signature verification to provisional ballots to the curing process, Mm -hmm. all of like the weeds that a lot of people don't really like to talk about, but election reporters 
and democracy reporters, voting rights, voting issues reporters really live in. Mm -hmm. That is what we are anticipating talking about for probably many months. This is your world. Okay. So let's then talk about why these races are going to end up as tight as they probably will, right? And this has a lot to do with just sort of the, the electorate in our state right now. We have been a traditionally red state for a long time. That has been slowly shifting. There's debate over how much, right? You've got a pretty large Republican voting bloc within that a pretty substantive Trump loyalist voting bloc. Democrats, obviously, on the other side as well. But it's really independents who rule the day in Arizona right now. They are once again now the largest voting bloc in our electorate. What does that voting bloc look like and how does that kind of result in these races that will be decided by so few votes? I've spent a lot of time talking with a lot of these independent voters. And one of the more interesting themes that has emerged at least recently to me is just how disgusted they are with both sides, Hmm. with both major parties, how turned off they are. And these are people who are living their lives They have kids. They want to feel safe. They want to feel like their government is looking out for them. They want to send their kids to good schools. They don't really want to think about government. Mm -hmm. And unfortunately for them, in their own words, they are having – they're having to think about government all the time. They're watching these fights play out in Congress, expulsions, sometimes like physical altercations. They're – turned off by it. And these are people who are just looking for a return to normalcy. And these voters, as you said, are really going to rule the day. The other dynamic that I think we really need to think about is all of the transplants who have moved to Arizona since 2020. Yeah, We are one of the fastest growing areas in the country. We add 100,000 or so residents to this area per year. Yeah. That is a lot of new voters. And so part of this game is going to be reaching those people, reaching those people who don't necessarily have a hardened viewpoint of a particular candidate Mm -hmm. or a particular voter. Maybe when they moved here from Wisconsin, they were Republican, but they show up here and it's like, whoa, this is a completely different Republican party, vice versa with the Democrats. So a big part of the game is going to be trying to reach them. That's fascinating. Okay. So Obviously, like Arizona coming down to the center of the political landscape is about issues. What are the issues that you hear from independent voters that they really care about? I think, you know, you think Arizona and you think immigration. But is that usually the one that really comes up a lot? It's actually the economy. Hmm. And it's the economy, stupid. It is the (laughs) economy. Um, They know what their grocery bills look like. And it's not necessarily like statistically, here's what the economy, you know, here's how the the shape of the economy, it's how they feel about the economy. So that's the number one driver. When you talk to women, especially um, along the Loop 101, where we have seen a lot of um, growth and we have a lot of persuadable, independent women Mm -hmm. and men, but these voters are also, surprisingly for some people, they care about rights and they're like like reproductive rights. Mm -hmm. They might be pro-choice or not, but they want to be able to have that choice. They don't want anybody to be able to make that choice for them. So abortion comes up. Abortion comes up quite a bit. Um, Education and having quality schools for kids without having to foot the bill for a private option. That's another um, big issue. And border security. Mm -hmm. You know, they see the images that are coming out of the border. They see the news in Israel Mm -hmm. and Gaza. That does not make them feel safe. Yeah. Right. That 
that directly connects to the border issue for them. And so huh. I think that safety issue is um, is definitely a driver yeah. for them. It's issues that hit home, right? When you talk about that, that particular corridor of voters, I remember the last time we were talking about elections a lot, it was all about independent women voters or even Republican women voters who were persuadable in the suburbs mm-hmm. in particular. Is that going to once again be a big trend in Arizona? I think that's a big trend. The other trend to watch, surprisingly, are men Hmm. and persuadable men. These are especially men who may have voted for Democrats in the last cycle are turned off by the economy, Mm -hmm. are turned off by perhaps the age of the sitting president, felt better financially under Trump Mm -hmm. and might be willing to look at another option. I would keep a big eye on those male voters. I would also keep a big eye on Spanish-speaking or bilingual uh, Latinos. Mm. And this is a population constituency that Trump saw gains with when he ran not just in 16, but in 2020, even though he lost the state narrowly, he was able to grow the the Latino uh, turnout. And Mm -hmm. so watch that. The Latino vote is shifting. Absolutely. I want to ask one more follow-up question about abortion, which you mentioned being an important issue, obviously here and everywhere. But there will also likely be at least potentially a voter initiative on the ballot to sort of enshrine abortion rights in the state constitution. Does that change this situation when when voters are directly voting on abortion on the same ballot as they're voting for the president? I don't think so. I think that at least in the minds of the people that I've talked to and we have written extensively about the ballot initiative, people's minds are pretty made up hmm. on this issue. It reminds me a lot of the issue of medical marijuana and where huh. the debate was on that when it passed. It feels to me on the abortion issue very much the same. It feels like people have moved on. Right. So they've already made up their minds about that. We'll get to more of the issue of voting itself in just a few moments. That is Washington Post democracy reporter Yvonne Winget Sanchez. More of our deep dive conversation after the break. Good morning. It's the show here on KJZZ 91.5. I'm Lauren Gilger. And we're back with more of my deep dive conversation on Arizona's role in the 2024 election with Yvonne Winget Sanchez, who covers democracy in Arizona for The Washington Post. And Yvonne, I want to talk about voting rights. This is obviously your beat and will be a contentious, a big issue this time around in our state as well. What are you watching for? Like when I bring that up, what's the first thing that comes to mind for you? Arizona not meeting the mandated deadlines to certify their election results. Right. This is the story you recently broke. And and it basically comes down to like the election calendar being crunched because of some recent laws that have been passed and laws that were already on the books in terms of like not having enough time to recount elections between the primary and the general and then the general and when it needed to be certified federally. This could be a huge problem, it sounds like. What does it look like in terms of lawmakers addressing this? That's a very good question, and it's one uh, we're going to continue to try to answer. This was an issue that election officials desperately – from around the state, right? This is not just a Maricopa issue. This is not a blue county issue. Mm-hmm. This is a red county issue as well, and I talked to a lot of people from these ruby red areas. They wanted this fixed. They were hoping that we could have a special session before the end of the year. That obviously did not happen. And they are now in the position where they are hoping and praying that this will be resolved 
perhaps during um, a special session during the regular session in January with a very isolated look or fix at addressing these issues. The big fear is that Republican lawmakers may not want to like straight shot fix this, Mm -hmm. um, that they might try to attach some other priorities of theirs to address uh, elections issues, uh, things that in some instances have already been rejected by either the governor or their peers down at the state capitol. And so there's deep concern that this process could be mucked up even more or delayed. Mm -hmm. And from the perspective of the elections directors and officials and administrators from around the state, they just want to be on the record saying, we have told everyone that this is a problem. It is informed consent at this mm-hmm. point. If, if this is not fixed, this is what it is. You guys have known that this has been a problem and you have refused to fix it. Let me ask you a question about staffing, about elections officials, people working in those offices, the people who staff elections. It's a lot of people, but we've lost record numbers of them. You've reported multiple times since the last two election cycles, probably because of all of the kind of vitriol around this. Are we staffed up enough? Like are are counties at that very local level ready for this? There are some counties that would say yes, We are. Like, we've been pretty stable. We've been able to avoid some of the other turmoil that we've seen in places like Cochise, um, to some extent up here in Maricopa County, obviously Pinal and Mm -hmm. other areas of the state. Some of these offices have been absolutely gutted. And even though they may have made hires to replace some of the people who have left recently, you're losing all of that institutional knowledge. And there remains deep concerns, not just within those offices, about their ability to have the manpower and the knowledge to carry out this next election cycle. But the attacks or the the harassment and the continued environment that continues to create this this turnover and this loss of institutional knowledge. And that's what we're talking about, right? Like I just got off the phone with with someone who just left a very rural position in an elections department. And she spent the last six, seven, eight months learning everything she could about how to run a local election. Mm. She's out. She's Mm. gone. There's like hardly anybody else left. So who is there? And they're having a hard time recruiting. That's the other issue. Who who would want to come work for some of these jurisdictions that have been in the public eye since 2020 in a way that is not necessarily positive. So so you take that environment and then you put it in light of the sort of war room mentality that you that you described at the beginning of this conversation and you've kind of got a recipe for disaster in some of these places that seems really concerning. Let me ask you about sort of the political ramifications of this because you talked about independent voters and you talked about how they just kind of want to return to normalcy, right? Probably also and maybe especially when it comes to elections and sort of being able to trust them and knowing the results and, you know, the things that used to be a given. The challenges that we saw from Carrie Lake, from others in the state since the last election cycle, last two, weren't successful. Like nobody overturned a a result. Do you think that'll play out again or do you think it's going to be much more complicated this time around? I think it's going to play out again. This is what one person told me and I think that they told it to me very well. (laughs) And of course, it wasn't on the record. (laughs) But it was usable. And the person said to me, Yvonne, it isn't always about winning. It's about demonstrating to your donors that you tried. (laughs) And some of this is not about winning. Hmm. It's about elevating issues. It's about sowing chaos. It's about sowing discontent. 
and in some instances about raising valid issues Mm -hmm. or questions about the way procedures are carried out. And I do think that unlike in other states around the country that saw people who are skeptical of elections, you know, lose their races, Arizona candidates have had great success in messaging to their supporters and beyond that there are procedures or issues that merit closer look Hmm. and that it is not necessarily a bad thing to elevate these issues in the way that they have. That's really interesting. Okay, so final question for you, Yvonne. Um, You have been a journalist in Arizona for a long time. You've covered politics here for a long time. You've covered some of the most contentious times in the state. How do you think politics have changed in Arizona in that time? And, and, And how maybe have they not changed all that much? So just reflecting on definitely like the last two years, last four years, maybe even expanding it out to like the last decade-ish, I think what strikes me the most is the human toll. Hmm. And there used to be a time earlier in my career where these elected officials and public officials would duke it out, right? And then they could figure it out. They could work it out. Yeah. You show up to meetings these days, interviews, lunches, conversations with sources. There's real damage that has been done. People who have talked about it publicly have acknowledged it. There are many other people who are struggling who have not talked about it publicly. I think that toll is going to be reflected in the coming years with a wave of elected officials and public officials who are going to step aside and be done, just like we're seeing in Congress. Mm -hmm. I think we're going to see the local version of this play out. It didn't used to be like that. Um, People could, again, like disagree and show up and do the job and keep doing the job. And, you know, people could figure it out and laugh about it, Mm -hmm. you know, down the road. There's no laughing about it at this point. People are in their corners. There are white hats. There are black hats. And then there's the fight for the middle and the fight for the hearts and the minds of the electorate. And I just feel like we are so divided now, way more than we have ever been, at least in the 22 years that I've been you know, here. And I spent a lot of time just out talking to people. Mm-hmm. And it's a troubling theme. And I think it's where we're headed. And I think it's going to get a lot worse before it gets better. Yeah. Okay. I'll leave it there. Yvonne Winget Sanchez, reporter covering democracy in Arizona for The Washington Post, joining us today. Yvonne, thank you so much for coming in. I appreciate your perspective here very much. Thank you. We saw big shifts in the pop culture landscape in 2023. Twitter became X. Taylor Swift inspired a new generation of NFL fans. And there was simply no escape from artificial intelligence. So what does 2024 have in store for us? To find out, I am here with Amanda Kerberg, a Ph.D. student at ASU's Walter Cronkite School of Journalism and Mass Communications, studying digital culture. Hello, Amanda. Hello. Thanks for coming in. Okay, so before we get into some 2024, 
for pop culture predictions. Let's start with a little bit more about 2023. I mentioned Twitter. I mentioned Taylor Swift. Uh, obviously AI. But what's your sense of like? What's your thesis on the on what 2023 was as a year? 2023 was definitely the year of the girl. Yeah, we okay. had girl math, girl <laughs> dinner. <laughs> it was a year of uh, it was a year of kind of indulgence, enjoyment. Yeah, a little self care. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know little treat we all deserve a little treat live was, concerts yes yeah going out um staying out late partying um cocktails mocktails not so much i think nero fiddling while rome burned but maybe nero having like a little nice girl dinner as a treat <laughs> <laughs> okay. okay so does that intend there to be you know is there going to be a shift in 2024 because of that i think so that's kind of how i approached it that um, my best friend always reminds me, I think of culture as kind of like a Hegelian dialectic. So there's a little bit of a react. I know. We have fun. That's very <laughs> academic of you. I love it. Yes, yes. Yeah. So there's like a little bit of a reaction. Mm-hmm. And so I think if we were going out, staying out late, indulging in girl dinner, um, treating ourselves to girl math, <laughs> whatever, whatever it said, uh, then this year is staying in. It's mm. kind of the homebody year. So I think if we look at like Beyonce, Taylor Swift – the girly girl Barbie core as 2023, then uh, my icon for 2024 would be the sleepy time tea bear. <laughs> <laughs> I love that bear. Okay, yeah, okay. Yeah. So what is this going to look like, this desire for coziness in the new year? Yeah, so basically if you look across industries, trend reports and experts are are kind of aligning with this, this idea of staying home, kind of cuddling into bed. Um, the Hilton Traveler profile for 2024 is someone who values sleep. Um, <laughs> <laughs> they want to make sure that you're going to have uh, their nice little bedtime routines, that you're going to have a mattress they like, not too soft, not too hard. Uh-huh. Um, and, uh, you know, good pillows, that kind of thing. New York Times is predicting that the food of the year is going to be soup. <laughs> that says a lot. Very cozy. Lot. Very cozy. And then we move on to Pinterest trend reports, um, which along with other kinds of fashion reports are saying that this is the year of grandpa core. Okay. So <laughs> an entire talking point unto itself. Grandpa core. Grandpa Explain core. this to me, Amanda. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> so grandpa core, think of it like um, thrifting oversized sweaters, okay. um, comfy slacks, nice shoes, kind of like – uh, just just something that you want to cuddle into, um, have have some soup. Um, if you look at, say, look at the Sleepy Time Tea Bear, he is serving Grandpa Core. <laughs> <laughs> this guy's okay. little nightgown, his little hat. He has a cap on. He has a night he's cap a on. Nightcap on. <laughs> oh, that's adorable. Okay. So less alcohol, more ca- cafes. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. That's what they're saying. Also, in terms of drinks, we're going to move back to uh, Cafe Core. Yeah. We're going back to coffee. Um, we did see a lot more mocktails this past year, mm-hmm. so there there was a difference in the way that we went out partying, yeah. um, sometimes more responsibly. <laughs> um, but yeah, that we're going to make kind of more of a space to really indulge in coffee at home. So uh, we're also looking at uh, spending more time in your kitchen, um, thrifting stuff, making stuff, crafting stuff for your home. So a kind of cozy maximalism. Okay. Um, so like the oversized sweater becomes, you know, the oversized couch, the oversized cushions, oversized blankets. <laughs> I can see how this this spins out. Okay. It's reminding me of like what we were doing back in 2020 or 2021 yeah. when it was kind of the pandemic and we all had to cozy in. Exactly. This is cozying in but in a more maybe we're choosing it kind of way. I think so. I think there's kind of a – in a sense I felt like 2023 
2023 was like finally releasing a lot of built up tension that we had from those pandemic years. And I think that was so important because we really needed that. But it's also okay to take a step back and say like, okay, let's kind of snuggle in with some cardigans and some board (laughs) games now. And like if if 2023 was our Saturday out. Okay. Then 2024 is our lazy Sunday in. (laughs) (laughs) And the trends really roll from that. I have to ask you, so you mentioned like a couple of really kind of like almost statistic sort of predictors of this, like the Pinterest predictions. There was the New York Times thing. Yeah. I mean, there are real ways of measuring these trends now. Have these always existed? Yeah. (laughs) Well, it's a lot of it goes back to that we can track so much stuff um, digitally. Mm -hmm. So if you look at like what people are searching for, if people are searching for Grandpa Cardigan. Yeah. And that is going up and up and up. Or people are searching for, you know, coffee at home, um, better ways to make coffee at home. How do I do an at-home espresso? Um, How do I take my lavender oat milk latte into my own kitchen? Uh. Um, (laughs) That kind of thing. Or like thrift stores near me. You know, thrifting has become so much more important. We're still seeing a big trend towards sustainability, things that last Uh, And I think even that feels a little like grandpa. Um, You know, think of my grandpa had his toaster his whole life. I would love to have a toaster that could make it through (laughs) uh, five years, let alone a lifetime. (laughs) Is there a level of, excuse me, sustainability here? I think so. Yeah. Which doesn't mean necessarily that, um, you know, fast fashion won't catch up and, and there won't we won't see like a mimicry of of this kind of thrifted homemade um, core. But I think that we still see, especially with the younger generations, that so much of their social media time, their consumerism overlaps with a sense of social justice and sustainability and environmental activism. So those those still feed into the kinds of trends that emerge. Yeah, it makes yeah. a lot of sense. All right. yeah. We will leave it there. Amanda Kerberg, thank you so much for coming in. I appreciate it as always. Thank you so much. Good morning. It's the show here on KJZZ 91.5. I'm Lauren Gilger. Lots of people make New Year's resolutions, and lots of them are kind of the same. Things like going to the gym more, eating healthier, being more adventurous. As we start 2024, we wanted to hear from Valley residents who made more unique resolutions and actually stuck to them throughout the year. Scott Daniels is a recent graduate of ASU's Cronkite School and spends a lot of his spare time in music journalism. His resolution for 2023? Listen to 100 new albums that were released over the course of the year. He did it and says he actually plans to do the same in 2024. Daniel spoke with my co-host, Mark Brody, who asked what led him to think this resolution was something he should do. So I wanted to kind of just keep up with music and how it's progressing overall in 2023. Because, I mean, every year the industry is going to be drastically different from the last year. Um, And this isn't the first year that I tried this resolution, but this is the first year that I fulfilled it. So last year it was listened to. Uh, an album every single day of the year. Wow. That was impossible. That fell through like a month in. That seems like a lot. Yeah. Like 365. No. That's a lot. Absolutely not. So um, you settled on 100. I settled on 100, a nice even number. And I was able to keep track of it. So I use this uh, website called Topsters, which is basically just like a grid that you can put in all the album covers and like look up what you've listened to. And so that way I can not only know what I've listened to, I can also rank them. So like I have a 10 by 10 grid. Um, So I am constantly shuffling around like, what is my number one and all that? 
All right, so what was your number one? My number one album was this uh, futuristic R&B release by an artist named Kalela. Uh, project's called Raven, and uh, it's themed around the ocean. Uh, figuratively, the deeper you get into the ocean, the more you kind of see into yourself. And so when you come out, uh, you're just a whole new person. Projects called Raven because ravens represent rebirth in that sense. How did you find all of this new music? There's multiple different ways. Um, first and for- so, like the first way that's kind of closest to my heart is um, through organizations at Arizona State University, uh, Blaze Radio being one. Mm-hmm. That's you know heavy music there. Yeah, and then uh, Album Club ASU is one that I found uh, earlier last year uh, that also. Ex- like uh, got me into so much new music as well. Were any of the artists people that you knew before, like you knew their music or you were fans of their music or maybe even that you knew of them and, and didn't like them? Yeah. So, I mean, like Kalela, I listened to her past couple albums before. So like her, I've been a fan of for a while, but I also check out um, music journalism websites, not necessarily like following their review T to T, but um, just checking out based on this album cover looks cool or I haven't gotten into this genre that much. And I just check it out and I find new stuff that I like. So were you judging albums by their covers? Occasionally, yeah. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) All right. So... Were there different types of music, like different genres that you maybe hadn't listened to before that you listened to and experienced and and either particularly liked or or didn't that maybe surprised you over the course of the year? The biggest surprise to me was country. Really? Yeah. Like you hadn't listened to it much before? I hadn't listened to it as much before. Um, I mean, I think before this resolution, because this has expanded my taste so much, before the resolution, I think I was mainly just electronic and rap. And that was it. Um, but now, since then, I'd say I'm pretty well versed in basically every genre. Um, but country really stood out to me this year because of how many quality releases came out. Um, Zach Bryan. I remember, I remember everything. Jason Isbell in the 400 unit. Everybody dies, but you gotta find a reason to carry on. Morgan Wallen. I go on from there does it surprise you that it turns out you like country music it kind of did um i thought that maybe it would be a bit too slow for me maybe it was my so i'm from indiana technically but um maybe it was my indiana roots taking over like okay yeah this is more my (laughs) speed um but yeah it was it was definitely a welcome surprise for sure anything else that that it turns out that you like that maybe you weren't expecting or that you didn't know about before yeah um this is actually even bigger of a surprise, uh, K-pop. Kind of just getting to know how that scene operates and like the sounds and styles that they incorporate into their music. Um, I think a part of what I like about all the music that I listen to is just knowing about the music. 
In terms of like knowing who the artists are, the stories behind the, the songs, that kind of thing? Yeah. Um, there was one um, K-pop artist who kind of went solo and I kind of read her background about why she went solo and it was to kind of live a more comfortable, less paparazzi-infused lifestyle. Mm. And so now she's making more comfortable albums instead of like in-your-face K-pop. And I think it's really cool to find out the backgrounds as to why artwork exists. Yeah, that is interesting. So was there any music that you listened to that it was kind of a struggle to get through the whole album? You're like, I really do not like this. Absolutely. So, I mean, with the resolution, it is a commitment. And sometimes there will be an album that is just a slog. Uh, for me, I think it was the latest, this came out about a month ago, the latest Drake album. Okay. Yeah. It was tough. It really? It was over an hour long. Most of the tracks either sounded the same or... Drake was trying to play every card at once, doing R&B, rap. Um, the singing wasn't great. It was just a bit of a struggle to get through. A couple of good features on there, though. Did you have an opinion of Drake before you listened to this album? I did. Um, and I think the opinion got worse because of this album. Okay. Um, many critics of Drake, I think, have been like, uh, he's been putting out the same record for the past six to seven years and I wasn't on that train until this album dropped. So it, this definitely changed my perspective. Any genres that you listened to and you just couldn't couldn't see yourself listening to again? Actually, no. Really? Really. That's really interesting. Like, So you opened your eyes and saw a, a bunch more, learned about a bunch more, and didn't really dislike any of it. No, and I think part of that is just like going into the background. Um, and I also so like I also collect records, and when I listen to that record of music, I also like read on the back of the record the the facets behind every song and all that. And kind of knowing that context, I think is just like what makes me appreciate it so much. So, do you think that you learned anything about yourself by doing this, other than maybe different kinds of music that you didn't know that you liked? I think that I learned. I am a lot more artistically open-minded than I thought I was. And like what what does that mean for you? I mean going into, you know, going into some kind of maybe music journalism down the road, that seems like it would probably be helpful. It would be. Um it's definitely like a great hobby to have and I would actually at this point because of the resolution consider listening to music a hobby. Um whether that be through buying records or through doing these analyses on the singles or songs that come out. Every week, I pay attention to the chart data, to what's popular. Um, so it's definitely helped me out a lot there. Right. Absolutely. All right. Scott Daniels, thanks so much for coming in. I appreciate it. Thank you for having me. All right. That'll do it for this Wednesday edition of the show. We will, of course, be back with you again tomorrow morning with much more. Don't forget to follow us on Instagram. We are at KJZZ, the show. For Mark Brody, I'm Lauren Gilger. Thanks for joining us. That's it for this episode of the show's podcast. To find out more about the stories from today or other episodes, you can visit theshow.kjzz.org. And you can subscribe to KJZZ's The Show on your favorite podcasting site. I'm Lauren Gilger for Mark Brody. Thanks for listening today.